1: Hi, and welcome to the Goop Podcast. I'm Elise Lunen, the Chief Content Officer here at Goop. If you've ever wondered what you're supposed to be doing with your life, I think you're going to appreciate today's conversation. First, though, a little appreciation for the team at Flow who are bringing you this chat. My unofficial New Year's resolution was to drink more water. Six months later, I'm pretty proud to say that I've been sticking to it, and it's gotten easier since Goop teamed up with Flow. Flow is naturally alkaline spring water. It's packaged in sustainable paperboard packaging with a plant-based cap. It contains more healthy minerals than most bottled water, and it comes in organic flavors like cucumber mint and blackberry hibiscus. The flavors are made without the sugar, artificial sweeteners, calories, and GMOs that are unfortunately found in a lot of other grab-and-go options. To see why people love Flow, head to flowhydration.com and enter code GOOP30 at checkout for 30% off your order or first month of subscription so you can have flow delivered right to your door.
0: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
2: For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit
1: ourselves.
0: When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered.
2: Courageous participation attracts positive things.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Dave
1: Evans teaches in the product design program at Stanford. He's the co-author of the book, Design Your Life, a guide that teaches us how design thinking can help us build a fulfilling and joyful life and career. Dave's mission in life is to help organizations build creative environments where they can do great work and love doing it. Dave and I had a lot to talk about. He reminds us that doing the thing is not the hard part. It's figuring out what you want to do in the first place. Oh, and I love this. The place to start, Dave says, is where you are.
2: The hardest thing for people actually is to give themselves permission to believe that there's not one right answer to who they are and what they might do next, but there are lots of good answers. That's probably the single biggest idea in designing your life compared to other ways people go about this stuff, is there is no, we actually argue not only, there's not a best you, there are lots of good you's.
1: Let's cut to my chat with Dave Evans. So I loved your book. I found it deeply resonant, even though I feel like I've done a pretty good job of designing my life. But there were two things that I thought were were very resonant, which is, one, this idea that if you are successful, inherently, you you will or should be happy. And that also, at the end, you talk about how people live their lives as though they're driving towards a specific outcome and that life is actually a process. So can you sort of start at the beginning and explain how you came into this to this whole role and world?
2: How did we get here? Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Sure, it's, um, you know, because I've, I've turned into what apparently is, you know, a New York Times bestselling co-author and now even an educational reformer right? at Stanford. You know, we're now actually reviewing applications for our fifth and sixth life design studio for educators, which will take us into like 100 universities that we've trained. And, and in truth, I'm really just an unemployed marketing guy from Silicon Valley. <laughs> so how did that happen? You know, what's this? how'd this guy get here? It really starts, you know, back in 73 when I'm an aggravated sophomore at Stanford. Stanford myself as an undergrad asking the question, what do I want to do the rest of my life? How do I figure out, you know, what to study and where to go? And I walked into the career center and I said, hey, can you guys help me? And they go, oh, yeah, we've got a whole building full of helpful people. We just love helping people like you. Like, what, what do you need? And I go, well, here's the question. What do I want to do? And they go, Yeah, that's the question. What do you want to do? And I kinda of go, No, no, that's my question. And they go, No, no, that's our question. And I go, No, it can't be your question. It's my question. They go, look, you tell you tell us what you want to do or who you want to be, then we'll help you go get it. That's what we do here. Kind of go, look, getting stuff is easy. Figuring out what you want, that's the hard part. That's what I need the help on. You don't do that? They go, No, not really. You know, which I found frankly criminally negligent and then I went around and talked to all the other nice grown ups and they were all equally criminally negligent. And it turns out you know, 200 years ago, you'd get better answers, but going back about 100 years now, uh, we do a pretty bad job of helping people answer the question uh, that the poetess poses, what will you do with the rest of your one wild and wonderful life? We're pretty bad at that question. So... Fast forward, you know, forty-five years later, or something like that. That's how we got here. So we got here because I was, you know, like everybody else. I'm just walking out my wound, and nobody helped me, and I'm trying to help those who didn't help me. And then, you know, it went through high tech stuff and corporate culture. I was on the first corporate culture committee with Steve Jobs in 1979. You know, and oh, everybody wants their work to matter to them, and nobody knows how to do this. So it turns out it's a, it's a pandemic, and then eventually the chance to teach in college showed up to Berkeley, and then my buddy Bill got a job over at Stanford in the design group, and they're the lunatic. Fringe who really understand how to do this stuff creatively, so we said, Hey, let's design think this thing. That was about going on 13 years ago, and then we wrote a book, and then you called me. That's how we got
1: here. <laughs> and it's true, though. I mean, that that age-old question of what do I want to do with my life is the hardest. And I think in the book, you have the stat that 75% of college grads don't follow the trajectory of their degree. And I had always been told, or I don't know if someone told me this, or I figured it out, like, you can't really ever figure out what you want to do. You can only figure out what you don't want to do.
0: And then well, you can't figure out what,
2: what we say is, you know, the reframe is, you know, the, the formal answer to the question, you know, what do, what, do we, what do we teach at Stanford, you know, is, you know, we apply the innovation principles to the wicked problem of designing your life at and after the university with the objective of empowering you to form a conscious competency in life and vocational wayfinding. Mm-hmm. So that's the carefully crafted elevator pitch. And they people go, oh, that sounds great. What does that mean? We go, well, we're the guys that teach the course to help you figure out what you want to be when you grow up. And they go, ooh, can I take the glass? And then we go, actually, even that familiar phrase, what do I want to be when I grow up, doesn't work. Because first of all, you know, who, who wants to grow up? Because frankly, if you keep growing as a person, growing up means you just died. So nobody wants that. And what it really means is w- figuring out what I'm going to be next on my continual process of growing into the next thing. You know, you're never done. So so you can't figure out what you want to be next and what you're learning on the way. doesn't mean that what you're currently doing is provisional. It means it really is life, but you're never done.
1: Yeah. Like what you just said, that idea, too, of wayfinding, and I think you explain, like, which I think is so true, you don't always know where you're going, but you just need to know that you're going in the right direction.
2: Well, the the absolute truth is you never know where you're going. People will say, no, no, I know exactly where I'm going. We'll go, no, you know exactly where you're hoping to go. The technical terms are navigation and WAFON. And the techni- so navigation is what your GPS and your phone does for you because it knows exactly where you are and knows exactly where you're going. And it has complete comprehensive information about the, inf- the space between where I am and where I'm going. So it can actually plot your route. That's navigation. Wayfinding is and now kind of where I am. I generally know the direction I want to go. I actually don't know the end point or even all the stops along the way. So the best I can do is come up with the first move, learn along the way, and then at you know the third furlong pole, I'm going to stop and think about it and, and readjust. And when you're doing this thing called inventing the future, which is what we're talking about, no one knows the future. Mm-hmm. So people say, I've got it all under control. I mean, that's, I mean, I am currently happy with the way I'm managing the present moment and my faith in the trajectory I presently happen to be living into is one that allows me to live with both confidence and a significantly reduced level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. That, that's the honest version of i've got this all under control cuz no you don't you may be enjoying the fantasy of, of that and it worked out for you a lot but the truth is we're all making this up as we go along life is an improv skit but you can get good at improv so what we're really doing with this life design stuff is we're teaching people to be good at the improv game called life
1: mm. and so how do you start like what are the defining pr- principles or questions where people like where's the how do you create the compass
2: well, I we actually have an exercise called the Cup, so that may be the place you start. But the, the, uh, first of all, where you start is where you are. There's a great big sign out in the, the patio near where all the grad students in the design program at Stanford hang out and work. This is, it's like a, one of the map things in the airport. It says, You are here. And it's a four foot diameter, you are here bubble. To remind people, you can only start in reality. Mm. You, you have to accept where you are. So the first thing is you absolutely start where you are. You're in exactly the right place. A lot of people start with you know, rejecting reality. Actually, they don't like their problem. You can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. Mm. So if you don't like where you are, you know, what you really have, and people describe their problem, what you realize is they're not really describing their problem. They're describing their problem with their problem. You know, years ago, a young man called me and goes, Dave, can you help me? I'm three years late. I go, well, call me when you got some time. He goes, no, 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 I'm just three years behind where I should be. I go, no, you're not. He goes, no, no, I am. I go, no, you're not. We argued for a year, you know, and I finally won the argument, thankfully, because that means he's now, because I said, you're not three years late, you're here. Right. You're just just where you are. You have this archetypal image of this guy you went to college with, and he's doing something different. You wish you were him or something, but that's just a fantasy in your head. You're not late, you're just here. And at the end of that argument, I finally won it. So thankfully, he finally became here rather than now four years late. So the the first thing is you really do have to start where you are, and you have to get over that that's problematic. It may have some challenges, but there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. And then, whether the first thing to do is to start curating your curiosity and discover your interests or whether it's to start going out and prototyping by talking to people and trying stuff or, or, or maybe it's really thinking through what your values are, or that want to inform this thing, there are vari- you know, we have a whole bunch of tools and ideas that we talk about. That can can be a variety of them can be the right starting place. We we don't have a script. We talk about a framework, not a system. It's not here's the ten steps to happiness. Do them in order, and all will be well. It's nowhere near that prescriptive. People are way too complex for that. We give you ideas. We give you tools. You grab the right one. Do the right thing at, at the right time.
1: So let's start. Let's start with one. So you talked about being curious. Is that sort of the same as like having a beginner's mind?
2: They complement each other, but it's not quite the same. You could, ha- you could be curious without a beginner's mind, and you could, uh, you could have a beginner's mind and not be curious, but that's kind of weird. So in the former <laughs> case, you're curious without a beginner's mind. There's a lot of that going on. Like I'm really curious where people will pay me the following to do exactly what I have in mind. Mm. Okay, that's kind of curious, but I'm not open. Right. Most people start with the answer, not a good question. Curiosity is wanting to know things, and that's great. We love curiosity. It's our number one preferred mindset. And then there's open-mindedness, which is an availability to receive things as they are. So it's an a priori commitment to reality. It's a, we say step, step zero is acceptance. All right, do you have an accepting and open, curious mind? If you've got an accepting, open, curious mind, you're in great shape because now you're really teachable. You can really learn things. You know, everything's your friend. There is no bad news. It's all just news. If we get a little more objective we get a little more patient, we get a little more accepting, the game changes rapidly. Now it's not all just mind games, you know, we I mean we talk a lot about mindset. But then you got to start doing stuff. I mean, we do a we have a couple of points of view that are probably different than a lot of other perspectives out there that hopefully people can get their hands on and get busy with pretty quickly.
1: Right. And you mean some of the more formal exercises within the book that sort of push on those sort of start defining what it is that Yeah. Because yeah. you
2: can't think your way out of this. You can't just think your way out You the The, the essence of design thinking is is you know prototype iteration. It's behavioral. We argue that you build your way forward. You don't think your way forward. You don't analyze your way forward. Thinking and analysis are great, but they're not enough. And particularly when you're doing this thing that's never been done before called your future self in the future world, you can't analyze it. Right. Because it's not there yet. There's no data because it doesn't exist yet. So what do you have to do? You have to try stuff. So that's where... You know, we get into this curiosity thing. We get into these these uh, prototype-oriented behaviors that have to do with getting out there and trying stuff.
1: And by trying, I mean that—that's the idea of essentially. I know this is a a big part of it, but the informational interview, or I can't—I don't remember exactly how you articulate it, but the idea that you go out and you start interviewing people whose lives are interesting to you—is that—is that exactly, yeah. Yeah. We,
2: when we, we, in fact, one time, we, we back when the book was being released, we did you know we're on the road a lot, and we were about to go on an early morning television show in Toronto, Canada, and the producer grabs me by the shoulder, standing behind a TV camera because it's all live, and he says, "By the way, we're behind. Your seven minute slot just dropped to four. I need the book in one sentence." And I turned to him and I, and I whispered, "I said, dude, we're we're university instructors. We pretty much don't do one sentence answers." And he goes, "Well, then you're off the air." And I said, "Give me a minute." <laughs> <laughs> so, and I came up with, in fact, the what we now call the keep it simple system, the KISS system, which is, if you want the whole book in a sentence, here it is. In fact, it's four short compound sentences. Get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. So get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. And I can explain sort of why that's generative and why that cycle really serves you. It's, it's a virtuous rather than a vicious cycle. But those, those get curious is... Tap into the energy that will keep you moving. And then the next two are both prototyping. Talk to people and try stuff. So again, we believe that prototypes are really the way to go. And prototypes, in order to learn something about that thing, you know you don't know enough about yet not prototypes to prove that you're right like this is just about ready to go let me test it that's a different kind of a prototype we do learning prototypes in design in design thinking and and so in life design what would those prototypes be well they're really two things they're a conversation talk to somebody hey what's it like to be an interviewer in the 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 post-internet digital world you know talk to me about that at least how you get into doing this get the story that's the informational interview or what we call the life design conversation and then try stuff. Is you know, sit in shadow, make a little, make a little hands-on experiment with it. You know, we we use the reference that one woman we know jumped out of the airplane of having been an HR exec for years and went all in. You know, and bought a defunct deli and totally remodeled it and turned it into this Tuscan deli and and uh, and cafe, which was her life long-standing dream and did, to great success, actually pulled it off. Except, of course, then she realized she hated it. And now she's stuck with the successful restaurant she has to run. And we said, hey, you could have prototyped that, but, you know, try catering on a weekend maybe once, you know, go go work as a, you know, as a waiter or a bus person in the kind of place that's what you have in mind and see if being there eight hours a day is something you really want to do. There's a lot of cheap ways to try this thing, which we call set the bar low and clear it. So the whole idea about having these conversations is it turns out you know, you can have a pretty significant experience not by getting research data. So having a conversation where all you're really doing is, well, how much do you make? And do I need a graduate degree? And, and you know, I had to get facts from people, you know, that I never got out of the waiting pool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, well, gee, how'd you get here? And how's, the, how's this work for you? And what were the surprises? And tell me the story. It turns out, the most effective way to generate um, your own curiosity, and particularly at the end when you're trying to actually make a move, the best way to get a job is not to ask for a job; is to ask for the story.
1: Mm. No, that's there's so old, true.
2: There's an old line of venture capital that says, you know, if you want, if you if you ask for money, you'll get advice. If you ask for advice, you might get some money. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and the mirror of that in this is, you know, if you ask for the story, you might get a job. If You ask for the job, you actually just get rejected. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really all about. Get-
1: Just a minute, we're taking a break. My job at our InGoop Health Wellness Summits is to man the chat room with Gwyneth. GP typically does the first and last talks of the day, and then I moderate the panels and one on one conversations in between. You've probably heard one of those on the podcast, as we've recently been sharing some of our favorites from our last InGoop Health in LA. It takes a village, maybe a city, to bring those summits to life. And one of our partners in wellness has been the team at Flow, who's joining us for another In Goop Health the weekend of June 29th in London. My team jokes that Flow's naturally alkaline spring water is the secret sauce that keeps me from passing out on the panel stage after moderating several back-to-back conversations. They also know that I could probably go all day without drinking any water if I didn't have Flow on stage next to me. What's so great about Flow? Here's what I've learned. Flow is naturally alkaline spring water with a pH of 8.1, meaning its minerals come right from the earth. Minerals like magnesium, calcium, bicarbonate, and potassium provide the alkalinity and electrolytes. In other words, you're getting the good stuff. Flow has six organic flavor blends, like my new favorite, blackberry hibiscus. They're made without juice, sugar, sweeteners, calories, preservatives, or GMOs. Again, just the good stuff. The other thing to like about Flow is that they use sustainable paperboard packaging and their cap is plant-based. Flow plaques are 100% recyclable and 68% renewable. And they have some good perks. Shipping, for example, is always free. If you head to flowhydration.com and use promo code GOOP30, they'll also give you 30% off your order or first month of subscription to have Flow delivered right to your door. We've been following the Green brand for a while at Goop and have teamed up with them on different projects over the past few years. You can see some of those along with some recipes on Goop. We were particularly excited when Green opened their first location in Los Angeles and it's been crazy to see how fast and far they've expanded. Today, Green has about 95 restaurants and over 4,000 team members who make seasonal salads and bowls from scratch using sustainably sourced ingredients Sweet Green is really at the forefront of redefining fast food in a way that's healthy, smart, and fun. Their menu changes with the season and they put a lot of thought into how and where they source their ingredients. The menu that's out now is their early summer menu. There's a seasonal elote bowl with roasted corn and peppers, warm quinoa, more veggies, and spicy sunflower seeds. That one might be my current favorite. But the blueberry summer salad with blackened chicken and a smoky vinaigrette is also solid. If you don't already order sweet green religiously for lunch or take your family there for dinner, head to sweetgreen.com and check out the closest sweet green to you. And to make ordering even easier, download the Sweet Green app. You'll also rack up some rewards there, like free salads, which is never a bad thing. Okay, let's get back into it with Dave. It's interesting just thinking back to my own college experience and then being pushed out into the workforce at a time when the economy was in the shitter and trying to understand what my options were that loosely aligned with things that I, and I just made a leap. I did sort of accidentally sort of what you talk about, which was prototyping a career. I had this idea, maybe I wanna be a costume designer, which now in retrospect is kind of hilarious, but I managed to get an internship on a TV movie. And so I got to experience what it's like to sit on set and stuff my face with craft services and read. And at first, I was like, this is so fun. And then by the third month, I was so bored. And then I was yeah, yeah. but it's true. I mean, I can't imagine if I, and this happened to so many of my friends, particularly in tough economies, they all pursued law school because it seemed like a totally reasonable thing to do with job security. And many of them are not practicing law because it was miserable. so.
2: Yeah, yeah. Probably unhappy. You know, what, uh, what are often referred to as recovering lawyers are probably the, you know, reco- recovering lawyers and recovering architects are probably the two professions we hear from most often. It's like, you know, I think I love the field. I hate the, I hate the career.
1: Yeah, my husband yeah. was uh, went to school for architecture. That's funny. Uh, He's not a practicing architect.
2: E- even when law school is working, and right now by with the way it's not, I mean, the, the national average placement coming out of a JD program as we speak is 20%.
1: Wow, it's wild.
2: Yeah, and uh, if you if you want to, if you're in the top ten schools, of course you get a better shot. But I mean, it's a bit of a bait and switch right now. And even even when placement rates were much higher on average, fifty percent of people who possess a JD degree, a doctor of jurisprudence, don't pass the bar, don't practice law.
1: Yeah, and this so
2: the perception of what it is versus what you think it is is huge.
1: Yeah. And the whole design thinking and trying to figure these things out is also so critical to women. And we've talked about this a bit on the podcast before, but, and this is the same situation for many of my friends. You end up in a job, you don't really like it, you get married, you decide to have children. And then the idea of going back to this job that you don't really like is unappealing. And so you leave and then trying to make a lateral move into a different industry, post-children becomes Herculean and impossible. And then we just are, you know, obviously we're losing far too many from the workforce. And they're sort of in this position of casting around trying to start over because they don't want to go back.
2: No, it's really tough. I happen to be, one of my features is I'm, I'm old. I'm old. I'll be turning 66 in a couple of weeks. I've got five adult grand, five adult kids and seven grandchildren. So, you know, I'm pretty close to a lot of young working women, you know, who are facing exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. And my wife went through that. I mean, she was IBM's first female mainframe sales rep many, many years ago. So she was a feminist 1.0 for a long, long time. And, no, I think, you know, particularly if you, a bunch of dysfunctional beliefs do go around, where do jobs come from? So, you know, in, in a post-internet world, you know, you want to go back in the job force, so you get out there on monster.com or Indeed Interactive and you post your stuff everywhere and you start sending cover letters around, you know, and you start going out and looking for referrals and opportunities, you know, and the rejection rate is, I mean, it's like 98%, 90%, you know, I mean, I mean, and it just doesn't work. Yeah. And it's, and it's really, and then, oh, by the way, while I'm doing that, I'm saying, oh, yeah, you know, and I've been out of the force for three years, and I'm doing a lateral, I was in finance, now I want to be in product management, like, good luck. Right. Which is where, and here's where the win is for women, because they're better at this conversation stuff and relational stuff, I and mean, they're better at collaboration, they're just naturally better at collaboration on the whole, and I don't mean that in some kind of sexist way, I just mean, I mean, the data is pretty clear. You know, when we teach ideation and brainstorming, We've got uh, a women's group, you know, they'll get it fast. We get a mixed group. You know, the women will help the guys get it soon enough. And if we are an all-men's guy, you'd be better plan on doing <laughs> it three times. I mean, that's anecdotal evidence, but it's really compelling. And, and so the win here is, hey, go out and get the story is something women can do. They're, they're com- more comfortable networking as a rule because what we call the hidden job market, you know, 80% of jobs are never listed. So if you apply to everything, you left four out of five on the table. And the way you get to those, you can't crack the hidden job market. You just have to be in it. And the way you get in it is through relationship. And the way and these communities of interest are penetrated by having conversations. And if you ask people, hey, I've done the research. It turns out you're the most fascinating person in the world. I'd love to get together and share our common interest and in how cool you are. I'll pay for the coffee or the, the wine at the place of your preference. Would that work for you? You know, we think about a seventy percent hit rate on that question. Hi, have you got any openings shall we talk? You know, you've got about a point one percent hit rate on that question. And the reason is when you ask somebody for the story, you're asking them for something they have.
1: Mm-hmm. When you're asking
2: them for a job, most of the time you're asking for something they don't. Right. The chance of yes goes way up when you're asking people to give you something that they've actually got.
1: Totally. And I think you talk about this in the book, but when you are asking for an interview or asking for a job, then it you inherently sort of put the person you're asking on their back foot and in a more defensive, judgmental position, right? Because now they're apprising you based on what they perceive your qualifications to be. So, and inherently, we all want to help each other. So as soon as you can create the relationship, you're much more likely. I mean, it's, it's so... I know that this is, the irony is this is not obvious, but when you actually think about it, it's so, it's so obvious, right?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the people thing really does work. And it's not so much that you're putting people on their back foot or defensive. I mean, they might be perfectly happy to talk to you about, you know, real opportunities. But as soon as, you know, you say job, I'm looking for a job, you immediately say, oh, we're now moving toward a decision. Either yeah. you're a candidate or not, yes or no. And if you're a candidate, you're either hired or not, yes or no. So I immediately put you into a judgment mode. We're making judgments here because we're going to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And is and let's say I haven't I'm not really sure I want to you know go work for LinkedIn doing community management or something you know whatever it might be you know I'm really trying to check this thing out and now of course now I'm selling myself hard into this decision and I'm not even sure I want it yet. Yeah. So this is the classic situation where in fact one of our colleagues from Stanford who's now gone back to Johns Hopkins talks about shifting the whole career model from prediction to prototyping is the way he's putting it his name is Dr. Farouk Day. You know he he's and he's got the title of he's the the vice provost of experiential learning and life design. Only guy in the world that we know of that title because he got to write it for himself. And the point being the old game was I know I will predict the future I will predict what I'll be successful at, what you guys really want, and I'll do it accurately. Mm-hmm. And then I will pretend that I am just like my prediction. And then if I predicted what you're looking for right, and I pretend to it correctly, then you will assess me accordingly, and we will do a deal mm-hmm. called hire me. And, 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 and so I'm faking looking like your future, and you're faking or you're doing the best you can to guess what it is you really need, and that's what we're relying on. And it's bogus. Now, when people write job descriptions and get to making decisions. I mean, that, that's their prerogative. But on the way up to that conversation, can't we just have a conversation like, hey, w- you know, what's it like? What are you guys doing here? How's that, how's that work? You mm-hmm. know, can we have a, a conversation that's more honest, more personal, more authentic, you know, that is not burdened by this judgment? So when I'm just trying to get your story and then, literally, at that point, when somebody says, oh, "Gee, are you looking for a job?" the answer is no. And then, under your breath, not today, um, <laughs> because literally, right now, I'm not. I am just a curious person. I am a completely safe, non-threatening, non-decision-demanding person. You got everything to win, nothing to lose in this conversation. And we'll get to that other stuff later, if ever. Right. You know, and that's and, and it and it takes a while for people to get comfortable with that because the front end of that process is slow. It feels slower than writing cover letters and stapling, you know, electronically stapling them to to uh, resumes. Except that that process doesn't work,
1: right? And I thought it was also fascinating. I actually have no real insight into how HR functions, clearly, but that you were in the book. You talk about how most resumes are then scanned and searched against keywords. So if you right. do, de- yeah. Can you explain yeah,
2: exactly. that? Well, yeah, the, what's called document management. I mean, you know, the, the, you know it's the early AI stuff. The, the front end for larger corporations you know, uh, is, is all automated. And so now you're doing keyword management, this kind of stuff. And, and you know, the, fr- the first person taking a serious look at you is a piece of software. Right. That's what the process is. And it's not, it's not illegitimate. It's not dishonest. It's not a conspiracy. It's just not very effective. And it's certainly not very personal. And certainly if you've got anything other than you look just like what we had in mind going on, then if you have anything that's the slightest bit atypical or out of the first standard deviation, narrowly defined, then you're going to have to have a person, you know, giving you some assistance, maybe even some advocacy. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your, you know, thinking about going back into the workforce young mom. Okay, you're, you're absolutely not what I was looking for. I mean, show me the job description. Says We're really hoping to find somebody who has recently spent the last 27 months at home with their first infant <laughs> because we've really noticed how patient and tolerant and capable those people are, and they're really good at doing a thousand things at once because they have very small windows of time available to them, so they're immensely efficient. That's the person we're looking for. If that's you, give us a call. I have never read that job description. It's deserves to be written, but it never has been to my experience. So you're already not what I had in mind. So if you're not what I had in mind, you want the relational system working for you, not the you know software evaluation system working for you. Totally, it's, it's going to bang. It's going to bang into something, and you're, and then you're going to be trying to fake it. Who wants to fake it? Life's too short for that.
1: No, oh, exactly. And I think that's the other sort of reality of of job searching and finding the right people is, and we struggle with this at Goop, or maybe it's not a struggle and it's it's a secret weapon, but in Inherently, you can create a job description and you can define a job as best as you're able, but really – and as much as we try to hire for the position and not for the person because that can be complicated, at the end end of the day, like, people want to hire people who they relate to and like and want to support. And so we often have conversations where we're sort of adjusting what we thought we wanted and maybe this is a terrible idea, and, and you can tell me so, but we t- always find ourselves adjusting what we thought we wanted to better suit someone who we thinks, think will add value. Um, oh,
2: I mean, both on the hiring and the hiree side, that's a brilliant idea. It's fed, it is actually even surprising how large an organization you can be dealing with where that real-time adjustment based on the candidate is being done. Mm-hmm. In other words, you, know, you do job design around people, not around problems and and we, and we talk about this all the time, you know, with, with our you know workshop clients and with our students. Look, you know, in addition to finding the cool job you couldn't have found any other way because it was a person-to-person availability, you're in the conversation and they're standing there and, 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 you're, and you're having this just exploratory conversation about what's going on in the field and, gee, I don't know much about microfluidics. You know, what are you guys doing here at, you know, Acme titration or whatever it is. <laughs> and, they go, and, and you talk about what you've done and some of the ideas you have, but the industry, gosh, you know, that is really what we need to be doing. It's not really CRM we need to be doing. And he really needs to be doing this partnership relationship, you know, community management. That's it's really different than, than CRM. The guy stands up and you know shouts over the cubicle, "Hey, hey, Anna, come over here a minute." You know, remember the thing we were talking about about you know, getting a position open up for so and so? And you know, I think what we ought to be doing, because you know, because because you know, Elise here, she she really knows how to do this stuff, and it just made me realize if we change the way we're thinking about this, I think we can kill two birds with one stone. What do you think, Anna? And Anna goes, "That's totally obvious. Let's do that." And you just watched the job description and the redirection of an employer requisition with your name on it coming to being right that happens all the time all the way from the in fact it's actually more likely to happen in some big corporations where you're talking to a decision maker than it is in small corporations because they have lots going on sometimes it may happen in a real small company because hey, there's only 10 of us and and you know each person we add is frankly just you know another 160 pounds of energy what could she do you know whatever it might be and so there's a lot of flexibility there but now you know Increasingly, people hire people. They don't just hire job descriptions. And it's much easier to get to that outcome Mm -hmm. by being in this exploratory conversation process.
1: We're going to take a quick break. One of my closest friends, Andrea Aria DeVoe, writes a column on sustainability for Goop called The Minimalist. Andrea is amazing and has been a real force in the movement to ban plastic straws here in Los Angeles. She has made me a lot more conscious of how much plastic gets used daily and is a big reason why I try to avoid plastic bottles and cups. Which is also why I love Corksicle. If you haven't tried it yet, Corksicle is a modern lifestyle brand that makes good-looking drinkware. They use stainless steel and their design is really thoughtful and fun. There are many different color options from neutrals to black to prints to bright neon And the drinkware has flat sides, which are easier to hold, as well as a non-slip silicone bottom and extra insulation, so drinks stay at the temperature they're meant to be at. For example, Corksicle's Canteen Style is designed to keep drinks cold for up to 25 hours, even in the sun. I've never made it out in the sun that long, but the Canteen is perfect for our longest, most tiring, and fun days at the beach with our boys. Corksicle's Tumbler comes with a shatterproof, spill-resistant lid and is great for coffee, juices, or smoothies and I'm all about something that can't spill. I also appreciate Corksicle Stemless Wine Cup. It keeps whites, reds, rosé, you name it at the right temperature for hours. But again, it's never taken me that long to finish a glass of wine. Corksicle has a line of insulated, cooler handbag hybrids as well, plus more accessories and barware. You can check it all out at Corksicle.com and use code GOOP for 25% off your next order. That's C-O-R-K-C-I-C-L-E.com. And enter Goop for 25% off your next order. And now, back to today's conversation. I think so much of the book is about collaboration, right? And the yep. idea of, of synergy and creating, generating a ton of ideas and sort of harnessing those forces to create something bigger. So can we? Can you sort of explain how to run a constructive brainstorm and what what you should be trying to do?
2: Okay, so if you've read the book and worked with this, then you've done your odyssey planning. You know, the three completely, the odyssey of life never ends. We're all on this journey, right? That's what we call it, odyssey planning. And, and by plan, we really mean odyssey ideation or odyssey possibilities. And so come up with at least three completely different versions of the next five years of your life. Because, you know, we all could do more than one thing. We're, nobody's monolithic. We, we observe everyone has more aliveness in them than one lifetime permits them to express, i.e., there's more than one of you in there. So you can't plan your future. You can imagine your futures, because there's more than one of you, and let's decide which one to be into. So one of the things you want to do, particularly if you're making sort of a life design decision, you're one of those inflection points where the game is about to change, you want to give yourself some options. So the first thing to do is to allow yourself to have more than one idea about what you might become, including some wild ideas. And you can do that individually. You can do that, you know, what we recommend is if you possibly can, find a design team. In fact, literally, when we close out this interview, I'm going to jump in the car and race over to campus and walk into a room full of about 35 Stanford Distinguished Career Institute Fellows, who are midlife people taking a gap year to reinvent themselves. And they're going to be sitting in their design teams. And their design teams are groups of people who are asking similar questions, like, I'm thinking about this. What are you thinking about? So you can get, you know, three, four, five people around the table who are asking similar questions about their lives or at least just interested enough in you to show up for a glass of wine, you know, once every six weeks and hear how it's going. Then you can ideate together. Now, if we want to go all the way to formally brainstorming and mind mapping using some of the ideation techniques of human-centered design, those, those are effective But those are actually, how do I have bunches of ideas? Um, That's not that hard. The hardest thing for people actually is to give themselves permission to believe that there's not one right answer to who they are and what they might do next, but there are lots of good answers. Mm. That's probably the single biggest idea in designing your life compared to other ways people go about this stuff, is there is no, we actually argue not only, there's not a best you. There are lots of good yous. And that's, there's a, there's a little bit of heartbreak for some people, like, oh, I really hope there was a single best man. I go, yeah, but how would you ever know, and did you have much chance of attaining it? You know, so sometimes it's kind of complimentary to believe there's some sort of, like, super-duper amazing, super-person version of me, that if I just found that, all will be well. That's a, that's a very popular fantasy, and as opposed to another look there are lots of good news, you know. And life is a continually unfolding process, so we're doing the best we can as we go along and If you bump into some of those good use and bring them into you know decent levels of reality along the way, you're doing a killer job that is that really is that really is doing a great job so the, the, the most freeing thing to ideate is to realize there isn't a single right answer there are multiple possible answers that are good, and I don't know even which one of those. I'm most attracted to or is the most available yet because, of course, I haven't been there. So that's why our tools help you go try these things out or it was a sneak up on the future.
1: Hmm. Maybe this is a curveball, but when do you know that you're at sort of the end of the road with what you're currently doing? Like what what seems to be the red flag moment for the people who come to you? So how
2: do you know when you know, you know?
1: yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's the question. How do yeah. you know when you know, you know? Yeah. So, you know, so we talk about that. We talk about decision-making. We, talking, we talk about knowing, you know, because uh, that's an issue. There's a, there's a chunk of the book that chats about that a little bit. We're bad at that, too, you know, <laughs> this, this even, even knowing what's going on. Part of that would be if I'm ref- – this is why in our, what we call the Good Time Journal, we reflect on how engaged and energized I am. And we explain, you know, how involved. What am I doing? And how energy giving versus energy draining is it? And if I notice that I'm, you know, at best moderately engaged some of the time, and mostly disengaged a lot of the time, and I'm virtually never energized, that's not very life giving, you know. And and the, and there's no prospect about changing. Well, okay, how stuck? Now, you know, we, we talk to people who don't have choice. You know, I mean, they're 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 essentially economically oppressed. Okay, so we have to design out of that. That's a different issue. But let's say you've got choice. You've got some, some capacity over your circumstances. You know, it's not life-giving at all. I mean, certainly if it's, you know, morally, ethically, or abusively toxic, I mean, get the heck out of there. Life's too short for that. But it's um, very often when we talk with people, and this is, again, anecdotal, but we get to be in conversations with literally thousands of people, people will often describe, not so much it's time for me to leave the work, but they'll have the experience that the work has left them.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: You know, you're you're driving along, I mean, I've got a version of the story, Bill's got, Bill's got a version of the story when he was driving down 280 on his way to Apple years ago, and he suddenly realized it wasn't his anymore. This isn't mine anymore. I'm, I'm all, this, is, this thing in my hands, like, I've got this job, in my, I've got this career, my, I've got this wonderful work I've done, he helped launch what we now call laptops, he invented the laptop computing industry, you know, and suddenly it's like, this isn't mine anymore.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: You know, I was, I did, you know, independent consulting for years, I had just been with a client, we would had a bunch of ideation, we wiped out a bunch of whiteboards, you know, which was my favorite thing to do, and I turned and walked out the door, and literally, as I'm walking toward the front door of the building, it was like somebody turned the lights off inside my body, the whole thing kind of went, you know, like, fade to black, you know, and I'm like, what was that, did I just get sick or something? And I suddenly realized I always have this immense buzz. I'm, I'm, you know, painfully extroverted, you know. And so when I get in an ideation space with a bunch of bouncy people, I mean, my, my little, little Tigger dial just goes through the ceiling and lasts for a long time. i got a nice long half-life on that. And the half-life on my Tigger buzz coming off a fun meeting was like one minute. And I went, what is that? And I just started paying attention, and it happened over and over again. I said, you know... Here's what I notice is, is the you know, you know, the universe or God or, or my soul is giving me enough energy to serve the client, but there's nowhere near enough for me to keep on. Apparently I'm just doing this for them. It's no longer, you know, serving me, not that it's life's about me, but if I want to do something that's a collaborative outcome and everybody's winning, I gotta be doing something else. I mean I can do the work but but my relationship with it is over. So what happens is just a reflection it's not this rule like you know when the following three things happen then you're done or or what have you it's it's usually a form of knowing that's not cognitive you know we have lots of ways of knowing and emotional knowing and intuitive knowing and social knowing and so on Uh, i'll end on this one which is have you had the experience of you know you you finally make a very important decision you know like yes i'm gonna marry him or yes we're gonna start a family now or or i'm Going to buy the tesla you know i mean whatever it is right some decision that you thought was important and you've been agonizing over for a little while and the person listening to you a really good friend or an intimate or a partner says ah oh, finally and you go what do you mean kind of like well you know we, we've we've known that decision about you for three weeks now we're just waiting for you to catch up to yourself <laughs> and a lot of people have had that experience they kind of go well, i mean that happens to me all the time and i go what, 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 what do you get off saying that i mean i if i didn't know how did you know they go are you kidding and so what people observe as you talked about that thing is they hear within the way you're speaking about things in your body language that you have landed. You ju- your brain just doesn't have enough rational permission yet, or you haven't made the argument yet, or you're, you, you feel obligated to vet the contingency alternative analysis more thoroughly because we're so cognitively driven these days and so quantitatively oriented. Um, and so sometimes when, if you're on the fence about whether or not something's time has come or has ended, ask the people who know and love you what they think is true of you and see what you hear. Sometimes they'll know, they'll hear your soul before you have permission to, particularly if you've got a noisy head. And these days, you know, with all the media we're consuming too much of the time, almost everybody's head is too noisy.
1: Thanks for listening to my chat with Dave Evans. For more, go to designingyour.life and see his book, Designing Your Life. It's such a helpful and fast read if you're feeling stuck with a life decision or need some help defining your purpose. And don't we all now over to GP for today's AMA
0: Haley asks, how do you prioritize work obligations, personal relationships and time for yourself? I find myself wanting to be fully dedicated to my work and my fiance, which includes planning a wedding, but I have so many friends across the world that I want to catch up with. But at the end of the workday, I want to do anything, but be on the phone. How do you make time for friends near and far without making it feel like another task on your to-do list? I think the first thing to remember is that true friendship really does stand the test of time. And, um, you know, my best friends I've been friends with since my childhood. And we sustained friendships, you know, before. Well, I moved to New York City, for example, when I was 11. And my best friend, Mary, who is still my best friend, she's like my sister, we met in kindergarten. I moved to. To New York when I was 11 years old, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't email, there wasn't texting, but the friendship was so strong that it's just weathered, you know, us being continents apart. And I think that's true with all my friendships. I was an expat for a long time. I lived in London, and I think that um, real friendships can sustain the ebbs and flows of of life, and inputs and outputs. You know, especially when we're going through really intense times in our lives, I think that's when, you know, you really know who your real friends are and they understand if you can't put in as much as you'd like to in a quieter season. And that's just where you are right now. You're working hard. sounds like you're building your future. You're planning a wedding. And when you have children, if you choose to have children, it's going to get even more difficult. So what I try to do is plan a couple of girls' trips. I have a couple of girls' groups that I make sure I have dinner with at least once a quarter. It's very nourishing for me to be with them. And, you know, just a quick text every once in a while, just saying, even acknowledging how you feel about being absent or less present in the in the friendship goes a really long way. Just to say, hey, you know, I'm I'm underwater right now. I'm overwhelmed, but I love you that puts a lot of of money in the friendship bank.
1: Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.